Morning Watermark Dallas. My name is Adam Tarno. Excited to be with you guys today. I want to start off with a quick story to set up our time. It was about 20 years ago. I had just graduated from college. I was living in Atlanta, Georgia. I had been a Christian, been a follower of Jesus for about two or three years, maybe at this point, probably closer to two years. Was plugged into a great church there in Atlanta and got to experience for the first time through this church what we here at Watermark call community. Started just running with some other guys that were uh, passionate about Jesus as well. And these guys had all been uh, following Jesus a little bit longer than I had been following Jesus. And so I was looking to them and kind of trying to model their way of life. And one day, uh, one of the guys that we had been running around with came up with this idea and this challenge for us where he said, hey guys, I think we should all memorize Colossians chapter three. We should memorize that entire chapter. And when those words came out of his mouth or I heard there was a group of people that were gonna memorize an entire chapter of scripture, my mind was blown At two years of following Jesus, I had never met anybody who had memorized that much scripture. I didn't know if anybody in the history of Christendom had ever memorized an entire chapter of scripture, and so my mind was kind of blown. I certainly wasn't memorizing scripture at that point. I maybe had John 3.16 memorized because I'd watched the NFL growing up and seen that sign, and what is that, you know, and kind of had read that, but other than that point, I'd never really set out to memorize scripture, and so I said, okay, great, let's go do this. Uh, you know, I bet this will be really impressive. We might get a phone call from Billy Graham if we can pull this off. He might be so impressed by that. And so I didn't really have a plan. I just started waking up in the mornings. And when I was reading my Bible, I just said, all right, I'm going to read Colossians chapter three. And I'm just going to go over and over and over that chapter. And let's just start with the first two verses and just open it up. And it says, therefore, since you've been uh, raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. And I just kept reading those over and over and over again. So a couple days after I started trying to memorize this this chapter, I was uh, at lunch taking a lunch break, or I was at work taking a lunch break, and the place where I was going to get lunch, there was a long line, about 10 people in front of me, and I knew I was gonna be in that line for a little bit, and just thought, what am I gonna do with this boring, mundane moment here in my life? How am I gonna pass this time until I can eat? And I just said, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go over my verses, right? I'm trying to memorize this here in about 30 days. I wanna try to memorize this whole chapter. I better, maybe this would be a good time to redeem this time in line. And so I just sat there. So I've been raised with Christ, set my hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set my mind on things above and not on earthly things. It just kept going over those verses again and again. And the line just flew right on by. I got my food and I was like, that's great. That's what, that's my plan. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna start to utilize all these little mundane, boring moments of my life And instead of just being bored, I'm gonna go over these verses. And so it completely changed the way I viewed all these little mundane, boring moments. And so now, every time I was in line at the grocery store or in line waiting for food, I was gonna go over my verses. When I was driving and got bored as I was sitting at a stoplight, I was gonna go over my verses. When I was making that walk from the parking lot into my office or into my apartment complex, I wasn't gonna be bored anymore. I was gonna go over my verses. If I, you know, for some reason was maybe sitting in church and got bored. I was just gonna go over my verses. And so I just used all of these little mundane moments and was able within the 30 days to memorize Colossians chapter three, and it was awesome. And now fast forward 20 years, 20 years, this summer. This summer I set a goal where I wanted to memorize John chapter 15. That's one of those passages of scripture that I feel like in my years of walking with Jesus, I just keep going back to the truths of that passage over and over again as Jesus talks about how he's the vine and we're the branches and we are to abide in him how apart from him we can do nothing. This was a passage of scripture, a chapter that I was very familiar with in my walk with Jesus, but I never really 
set out to memorize it, and I knew how rich it was to memorize scripture, and I wanted to experience that with John chapter 15, and so I set out at the beginning of the summer to memorize John chapter 15, and here we are, Labor Day weekend, the end of the summer, and I can stand up here before you guys this morning and let you know that it was a complete and total failure. I did not memorize John chapter 15. I'm definitely more familiar with it, and I spent a lot of time in it this summer, and just about every quiet time or time with the Lord that I had this summer, I was in John chapter 15, and it was rich to spend time and to read it over and over again, but I did not memorize it the way I memorized Colossians chapter 3 20 years ago, and as I was trying to think about what made it so difficult for me to memorize this this chapter this summer, what what happened in the last 20 years, I think I know one of the biggest things that happened for me over the last 20 years, and I will blame it on this. I'll blame it on my iPhone. Because when I got my iPhone about 10 years ago, it reframed the way I thought about all those boring and mundane moments that were in my life. All those boring and mundane moments where I used to be setting my heart on things above and setting my mind on things above, I now take my heart and my mind and I set them on things that are on this phone with useless bits of trivia and data and information and emails and text messages. I've got the same number of mundane, boring moments in my life that I did 20 years ago. I just don't tolerate the boredom associated with those moments anymore. I like to jokingly say, I remember the last day in my life that I was bored, and it was the day before I got this iPhone. Since then, I've never been bored. All these little mundane, boring moments of my life are now filled with this thing and looking at this thing. So now when I'm waiting in line to get lunch or now when I'm waiting in line at the grocery store, I'm not setting my heart and mind on things above. I'm setting my heart and mind on this and I'm looking at at things here. Did I get any emails in the last 15 seconds? And now when I have that dreaded walk from the parking lot, that boring walk from the parking lot into my office, now is the time to be productive. Now I can look to see if I got any text messages. Now when I'm sitting at a stoplight, that's okay. 90 seconds goes by really fast when you have the internet. You can just sit there and look and all these little boring mundane moments are now filled up with this. And as I was thinking about this all this summer about how I failed at memorizing this passage and how much time I spend with my eyes focused on that device, I thought of this quote from John Piper that some of you guys may know. John Piper's an author and a pastor and he said this quote a few years ago and it's one of those quotes that you read it and you never forget it because you get mad at it. And so here was the quote, it said this, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. I read that and you're like, John Piper, Schmiper, who is he, right? What's he doing messing with my world like that? And I think the more I dwell on that and the more I think about my own life, the more I realize he's exactly right. Every single one of us We all have time, we all have it. We all have boring and mundane moments in our life. And what Piper was maybe realizing about his own life or maybe what he was observing is that if we're not careful, that device is going to just take up all of our time and attention and we're gonna wake up one day and we're gonna realize we wasted our life. And I start with that because that's what I wanna talk about this morning. I wanna talk about how we cannot waste our life how we cannot waste it. And, and just to be really clear, this is not gonna be a message that screens are evil or the internet's evil or YouTube is evil or uh, cut, cut, you know, cut all of that out of your life. It's not gonna be one of those messages because our iPhones and the screens and the internet and social media, that's not the problem. The problem is our hearts. Our hearts are the problem. 
Our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are looking for life somewhere, and we, most of us, or at least just for me, I know I think life is found in those devices. And so when I'm bored, I cannot tolerate that boredom, and I want life, and so I go looking for it on a device. And I think what's gonna happen one day is I'm gonna wake up and realize I'm wasting my life. And so we're gonna talk about today how we can not waste our life. And I think this is a really important message for all of us because one thing I know is true of all of us in the room is that nobody wants to get to the end of their life and look back on their life and have any regret. Nobody wants to look back and go, oh my gosh, I, I, I wasted it and I didn't even know that I was wasting it. And especially now in 2019, I mean, human beings, there's always been a risk of us wasting our lives. We're gonna look at this passage of scripture even here this morning where 2,000 years ago, there was a group of people that was at risk of wasting their lives. Humans have always had a risk of wasting their lives. But now in 2019, there are some very unique challenges that you and I face. There are more opportunities now to waste our life than maybe any other culture that's ever walked on this earth. And a lot of these opportunities that you and I have to waste our life right now, they're subtle, they're really slow moving, and many of them, as we're gonna see, or if we even think about it, are socially acceptable. And so what we need is we need a wake-up call. We don't so much need to be taught, we need to be reminded of the fact that we can waste our life one mundane moment at a time. And I know none of us want that. And so today, if you got your Bibles, let's open up. To 1 Peter chapter four, we're gonna be in this passage, 1 Peter chapter four, verses seven through 11. We're gonna just spend some time unpacking what Peter was saying to these churches at this time. Those of you guys know Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. He was one of the early leaders of the church, and so there were some churches that Peter knew of that were in the area of what is now modern-day Turkey, and these churches were facing a unique situation where some persecution was starting to happen. It was not cool or hip to be a follower of Jesus at this time in the first century. There was some persecution that was happening. People were dying for their faith. And Peter had heard these stories and knew that this church and these churches were at this inflection point. There was a risk that they could turn their back on the faith and start to waste their life. And Peter didn't want that to happen. And so Peter wrote them a letter. And I think in this, this wake-up call for this church is still a wake-up call for us now almost 2,000 years later. So let me read the whole passage and then we'll go back it, I think in this passage, there's at least, at least three reminders for us on how we can avoid wasting our life. So here's what he says, chapter four, verse seven. The end of all things is, the, is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever, amen. There's so much here in this, in this passage. Let's just go back up here to the top to verse seven and let's just unpack some of this. The end of all things is there is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. So the end of all things is, there, is near. If you hear that, I don't know what pops up into your mind. Sometimes I think about a person with a sandwich board walking around a college campus, ringing a bell, saying the end of all things is near, the end of all things is near, somebody downtown doing something like that. And when I hear somebody out there in public talk about you know, the world's about to end or the end of all things is near, I think about maybe what's gonna come out of their mouth after that is just gonna be crazy. 
Maybe it's just good entertainment, and I want to kind of wait and hear what that person's going to say. And so Peter is saying that. He's saying the end of all things is near, but what's about to come out of his mouth is not crazy, it's profound. And Peter had an eye on this church and the present circumstances that they were facing and the reality of the persecution that was coming upon them that for many of them reading this letter, the end of all things was near because they were maybe gonna be the next victim of the persecution and lose their life due to their faith. But Peter also had an eye on eternity and just basically just going, even if you live and make it through this persecution, still for you, the end of all things is, is near because in light of eternity, all of our lives are just a vapor. All of them are just a vapor. And so that's so relevant for us here this morning. So it doesn't matter what your age is, doesn't matter how old you are, For every single one of us, the end of all things is near. And so because the end of all things is near, now is the time to think about what we're gonna be doing with our life. I don't know about you guys, if you ever played this little uh, game I did in high school with my buddies sometimes, we'd be sitting around late at night and maybe throw that hypothetical out there, like what if you found out the world was gonna blow up tomorrow, what would you do tonight? Any of you guys play that game? Just No, just me and my friends? Okay, so anyway, we played that game. And I remember we'd play that game and wonder, what are we gonna do if the world blows up? And I always had an answer right away. And my answer usually involves something like, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go drink as much alcohol as I possibly can. I'm gonna do every drug that I've been resisting. Mind you, I knew no drug dealers at the time, but I thought if this little hypothetical was going down, they were all gonna be like right there on the street corner. And so I'm gonna go do whatever drug I can do. I'm gonna steal a fast car. I'm gonna drive as fast as I can without my seatbelt. And I'm going to bed without brushing my teeth, okay? Like, I'm gonna do what Bon Jovi says. I'm going out in a blaze of glory, all right, is what's gonna happen for me tonight. That's, that was like 16-year-old little Adam. That's, that's what I thought. Basically, if the end of all things was near, now is the time to just give in to every desire I had. And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. The end of all things is near for all of us. Now is not the time to give in to revelry. Now is the time to be alert. Now is the time to be sober-minded. Why? So that you can focus on God, so that you can pray. Some of your translations may say, therefore, now is the time to be self-controlled, to be self-controlled so that you can focus on your relationship with God. And so I think right here, we just see in the very beginning of this passage, Peter giving us one reminder of how you and I can make sure we don't waste our life, and it's this, is to be self-controlled. Be self-controlled, the end is near, be self-controlled. Don't give in to your desires, don't give in to every wish that you have. Now is the time to double down and be self-controlled so that you can focus on Jesus and pray and follow after him. Because what Peter knows is this. Peter knows that if we're not self-controlled, if we're just giving in to our desires and all of our wishes, that means we're gonna be sinning. And sin is a waste of time. That is a waste of time. I don't know why, for some reason, over the past year, that thought has been so profound to me, just this, this idea that sin is a waste of time. And it makes me think very differently about my past and all the times I wasn't self-controlled and I just gave in to whatever my desires were at the moment. I look back on those and I just go, not only did that hurt me most of the time when I gave in to those desires, it was a complete and total waste of time. And I had an example in my life just this week on Tuesday, again, another reminder of how sin is a waste of time and the situation revolved around this, this little orange rubber duck And the circumstances surrounding why I have this rubber duck are so crazy and so preposterous that I don't even know if I can adequately explain it to you. So I'm just gonna go in some bullet points and hopefully you guys will follow along, okay? So I'm on staff here at Watermark. A Couple of weeks ago on a Tuesday, we had our staff meeting 
Everybody on staff was given a rubber duck, and we were given some instructions that in two weeks, we were gonna have an all-staff gathering out in Fort Worth, and the instructions were this, hold on to your rubber duck, keep your rubber duck, you have to bring your rubber duck to this all-staff gathering two weeks later out in Fort Worth, and if you don't bring your rubber duck out to Fort Worth, then you are gonna have to pay a consequence. Now, when I say consequence, don't think that you're gonna have to work an overtime shift with no pay or do 50 push-ups or something like that. It's much worse. The consequences are this, like, I don't know, maybe you'll have to dress up in a duck costume and go all around Dallas and swim in various ponds and take pictures of yourself, okay? Think that, that kind of consequence. Or you're gonna have to rewrite the lyrics to Taylor Swift's new song about a rubber duck and record it as a music video, okay? So I hear, I hear consequence and I just go, I'm a 44-year-old man with a family and a full-time job. I've got no time for consequences, okay? No time. I don't want any consequences. So this duck is given to me and I'm gonna protect it. So for two weeks, I hid it in my backpack. I didn't tell anybody about this rubber duck. I didn't even want it to see the light of day because I don't wanna have a consequence, okay? Tuesday morning, Tuesday morning, I'm about ready to leave. I'm about like maybe five or 10 minutes from being ready to leave my house to go out to this all-staff gathering out there. And I take the duck out of my backpack and I set it on the mantle in my living room and I put my keys right next to it so I will not forget it. I then go back into my bedroom to finish getting ready. I hear my kids yell down the hallway. I've got two kids, third and fifth grader. Hear my kids yell, bye dad, they're going to school. If you guys remember on Tuesday morning, it was raining so my wife is driving them to school. They leave, I hear the door shut, a minute later I come out, I walk down the hallway, I go and I look on the mantle, and the duck is gone, and I go into a panic. (laughs) And I immediately get my phone, and I make what will easily go down in Adam Tarno's history as the most ridiculous phone call of my life. (laughs) And I pick out the phone, and I call my wife, And my wife answers the phone the way she always answers the phone because she's so sweet. She says, hey, babe, what's up? And I say something like this. Do you have the rubber duck? I need that rubber duck. There was a rubber duck right there on the mantle and I have to have that rubber duck because if I don't take that rubber duck out there to Fort Worth and I'm gonna have to pay a consequence and I don't have time to pay a consequence, I don't want a consequence, where is the rubber duck? Kind of at that volume and that tone. That's almost an exact representation of how that phone call went. So she, I hear her kind of rustling around and she goes, yeah, the boys have the rubber duck. I said, I need the rubber duck right now. And she goes, okay, well, I'll, I'll turn around and I'll, I'll bring you back the rubber duck. So now the goal for the Tarnos is not, let's get the kids to school on time. <laughs> the goal for us is let's get dad the rubber duck, okay? So the, the, the car pulls up into the driveway and I go out there and they toss the rubber duck to me and my kids are like all excited. They're like, sorry, dad, I didn't know it was yours. And I just look at them, right? <laughs> my wife's like, I'm so sorry. I thought, that. just look at her, take the rubber duck, turn my back. I don't even talk to him. Turn my back, go out to Fort Worth and I don't have to pay a consequence, okay? Now you fast forward to when I come home that evening. I still had some things I needed to clean up, okay? Because I was not gentle, I was not kind. And so my wife and I, I mean, the very first conversation, I'm thinking about it all day, I know. My little, I I looked at the phone call, it was 21 seconds. That 21 seconds is gonna lead to some cleanup time. I'm so sorry, I was not gentle, I was, uh, my tone was nowhere close to being kind. Will you forgive me? Jackie was kind, forgive me talked for about, I don't know, eight or 10 minutes about that, and then dinner time that night, 
conversation with the boys. Hey, boys, help me understand why you would think it's appropriate for you to take an orange rubber duck with your dad's name on it. Let's talk about your lack of self-control right now, okay? I think you've got some blood on your hands in this situation. Whenever you're facing this situation again, what's another way you're going to do it, you know? Like they're ever going to see a rubber duck just show up on the mantle in their house ever again. And so we have all this. So, I mean, literally, I just I added up the time. It was probably about 25 minutes of cleanup after a 21-second phone call. And that was just Tuesday. That was just one example of how much time sin takes up. Sin is a waste of time. And I think so many of us know this. You've never met an addict who had their life just controlled by a substance for like a decade. And then they look back on that decade after Jesus opens their eyes and helps to to get their life back on the right track. They never look back on that decade and just say, you know what? I look back on that decade when I was an addict and it was just a great learning experience. And I'm so glad I went through that. No, they look back on that decade and they say, I wasted it. I wasted my life during that decade and I will never get that back. And we know this. We know that sin is a waste of time. The end of all things is near. Now is the time to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that we may pray. We know this. We know that when we give into our anger, it's five seconds of anger with hours of cleanup afterwards. We know that when we give in to all of our sexual desires and we don't have any sexual purity in our life, it, it, is, it is moments of pleasure followed by weeks and months and years of guilt and shame. We know in that moment when we lie to make ourselves feel better and then it just, it wastes all this time as we have to keep lying and keep lying and keep lying to make up for that first lie. We know this is true. But sin is a waste of time. I love what the author of Hebrews says, is therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So the author of Hebrews here is using this metaphor of a race, of us following after Jesus as a race And he's saying, as you follow after Jesus, don't let sin easily entangle you because in a race, if you get entangled, you fall down and not only do you hurt yourself, you also waste time in the race. And so Peter's saying, now's the time. Now's the time to be alert and to be sober-minded so that you may pray. If you don't wanna waste your life, be self-controlled because sin is a waste of time. He keeps going here. Let's look again at verse eight. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And then he just gives a really simple example of what love would look like. Offer hospitality to one another with this attitude that is without grumbling. And so Peter's saying, here's another way. Here's another way that you cannot waste your life is to put the focus of your attention on other people for an extended period of time. Love them deeply. And here's why, because love covers over a multitude of sins. And what Peter's not saying here is that the way you love others is going to atone for your sins. He's not saying that. There was one act of love. There was one act of love that covers our sins, and that was Jesus hanging on the cross. His blood is what atones for our sins. We don't earn this right relationship with God. That happens because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And what Peter is saying here is love each other deeply because your love can be louder than your sins. Your love of others can be more memorable than your sins. So because the end of all things is near, love each other deeply, offer hospitality, do all that without grumbling. Just focus on others. And so the second 
reminder that Peter has for us here is to be self-controlled and to be selfless. To be selfless, which is very similar to the first point of being uh, self-controlled because selfishness is a sin. But he's saying this, now is the time to put the focus on other people. And my heart needs this reminder, this, this reminder that when I don't focus on other people, I'm wasting my life. My heart needs this reminder. And the reason my heart needs this reminder is because I got, I've got some Terrell Owens in me. I love me some me. And I buy the lie that nobody else is thinking about me, and so I've got to think about me. I buy that lie. If you could take my thoughts from any given day and put them into a word cloud, you guys know what a word cloud is? You take a block of text and you put it into this algorithm and it, and it reads all the words and the ideas in that text and it makes the ideas that are in there uh, that are repeated often, it makes those words bigger, some of the other words smaller. We've got a picture here. I took the Sermon on the Mount what we studied this summer, and I put it into a word cloud. And so you see some words here that pop. And the bigger the word is, the more often that word shows up in the block of text. And so you see words like, uh, like heaven and one and others that are in the Sermon on the Mount because those words are repeated often. If you could take my thoughts from any given day and put it into a word cloud, there would be some words that would be a decent size, some words that you would expect to see there like Jesus in the Bible, in church, and some names like Jackie and Joshua and Jake and words like Nutella. I mean, just normal things that we all think about all day. But I think to my great shame, the words that would be the biggest in there are I and me. I and me. Because I'm prone to selfishness. I'm prone to just thinking about myself because I buy the lie that selfishness is gonna make my life bigger. And selfishness never makes my life bigger. Selfishness, it always overpromises, and it always underdelivers. It's like one of those coin pusher games at Dave and Buster's or Nickel Rama, you know those games where that arm is moving back and forth and all those quarters are there and you pump some quarters in there because you think if all those quarters fall off then you got you know, free Chick-fil-A for like a day and a half and you just keep putting those quarters in there thinking this one's gonna do it, this one's gonna do it and what ends up happening is the coin pusher game takes a lot more than it gives. And that's what selfishness does. It takes way more than it gives. And I think we all know this intuitively. We've had experiences with this where selfishness, we think it's gonna make our life better. We think it's gonna make our life bigger and it just doesn't. I mean, some of you, maybe even this weekend or maybe one other weekend uh, earlier this year, you had a long week with your family or a long week at work or going through a tough season at work and so you're looking forward to a Friday night or a weekend where you're just gonna do nothing. You're just gonna go on a Netflix binge and you're gonna watch all the seasons of Stranger Things and then you're gonna get caught up in the office again and then you're gonna watch Friends again and then you're not gonna tell anybody but you're gonna check out what Gilmore Girls is all about and it is just, just this Netflix binge and you go to work on Monday after doing nothing but just entertaining yourself all weekend thinking it's gonna fill you up and you show up on Monday and you're depleted. Or you think about that vacation you go on it's like, you know what I need right now? I just need the vacation where I do nothing. I just sit on a beach and I do nothing, and it's just the beach and the pool and the beach and the pool and sleep and the beach and the pool, and you go on a vacation like that and you come back to the office and you feel empty. But then there's some of you, there's hundreds of you every year. So you know what, I'm gonna think about those weeks a little bit different. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna get on an airplane with 25 other people and we're gonna fly to Miami and then we're gonna get on another airplane and we're gonna fly to Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And that plane's gonna land and we're gonna get all of our luggage and we're gonna put it on a school bus and we're gonna ride on these unpaved roads for 90 minutes 
with no air conditioning, and then we're gonna show up at Mission of Hope, and we're gonna sleep 25 to a room, and I'm gonna sleep on a bunk bed under a mosquito net. I'm gonna sleep on a mattress that looks like it was taken from a baby's crib. I'm gonna go paint houses all day. I'm gonna go plant some trees. I'm gonna uh, experience that gross violation of personal space, which is the kids' club, and I'm gonna let these, these kids climb all over me and treat me like a jungle gym. I'm gonna sweat for a week and eat nothing but white carbs and peanut butter. And then I'm gonna land back in Dallas and I'm gonna feel so alive, so alive. Because we know exactly what Peter is saying is here, the end of all things is near. You're gonna waste your life if it's just all you all the time. That's not where you find life. Selfishness, it always overpromises and underdelivers. That's what always happens. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 26. He was talking to his disciples, and this is what he said. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. It's just, it's the opposite of what we think is gonna happen. Verse 26, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul with the answer being nothing? So what Peter is saying here is if you don't wanna waste your life, now's the time to be self-controlled. You don't wanna waste your life, now is the time to be selfless, to let others be the focus of your attention for an extended period of time. Now is the time to love deeply. That's not where he ends. He keeps going. Let's go here. Verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And then he gives a couple of examples of these gifts and the way you could use them. So if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. And when you do that in all these things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever, amen. So Peter's wrapping this up and he's reminding the readers and he's reminding us here this morning that all of God's children have been given gifts. You've been given some time and some talent and some treasures and you are not to hoard those gifts and just put them on display in the, in, in the house of your life that these gifts that you've been given are not for you, they are to be given away to other people. And so Peter has this third reminder for us of a way that we cannot waste our life is to be self-controlled, be selfless, and the third one is to be a steward. Be a steward of the gifts that God has given you. Take these gifts that he's given you and don't use them for your own glory. Don't use them according to your own vision and values. Use them according to God's vision and values. Be a steward. You know another, what he's basically saying is he's saying this. He's saying, be a re-gifter. Be a re-gifter. God has given you gifts, not for you to collect and put on display in your home. Be a re-gifter. Take those gifts and give them to other people. I don't know what your views of re-gifting are. My views were challenged three days before my wedding of re-gifting. My wife and I, about 16 years ago, we got married on December 28th, 2003. So on December 25th, Christmas morning, we were gonna be going and spending Christmas morning with, with her family. And we had been so busy leading up to the wedding that we didn't buy gifts for anybody. We really weren't even thinking about Christmas. It was just three days before our wedding. And so uh, that morning, we were gonna go spend time with her family. I left the apartment where I was staying. She was already starting to stay in the apartment that we were gonna be in after we got married. And so I drove over to our apartment that she was staying in, knocked on the door. She opens it up. 
and I was like, you ready to go? And she said, just give me a couple minutes, I'm almost done. She walks into the, so I go in the apartment, shut the door, she walks in, she goes into a closet and just kind of disappears in this closet. And I hear a bunch of things rummaging around, and a few minutes later, she comes out of the closet, what I remember holding uh, two picture frames with I think her pictures in them. And I said, what are you doing with those picture frames? And she said, I totally forgot, we need to exchange gifts with my family. And so we didn't have time to go buy any gifts, and so I'm gonna give them these picture frames. So I had a couple thoughts. My first thought was we clearly have a communication issue right now uh, because we did not communicate that we were going to have to exchange gifts. Had we known, I could have helped out, I could have gone and bought something, and so, all right, we need to have a communication, we need to grow in communication, that's good, that'll be uh, maybe job one when we first get married is to start to grow in that. And the other thought that I had was this, is that the woman I'm about to marry in three days is a regifter. <laughs> and we did Watermark's pre-marriage ministry. We did merge, but there was no questions that brought this fact to the surface, okay? And so I don't know how I'm feeling about this. I'm like, is this awesome or is this awful? I don't know. And I watched her take the pictures out, wrap them up. We went over to her family's house. She gave them the frames to the people in our family, they opened it up, they said thank you, and the whole time I'm sitting there just thinking to myself, she sits on a throne of lies. <laughs> now in her defense, in 16 years of living with her, it was the only time I've ever seen her regifting, and so I think it was, just, it was just the season that we were in, but it just reminds us, I don't know what we think of regifting, most of the time we look down in our culture at regifting, but it's just, it's just the opposite with God. He absolutely wants us to be regifters. He has given you these gifts and they are not for you. They're for others. And in my 17 or so years here at Watermark, one of the things that is so encouraging to me as I watch this body, one of the things that is so encouraging to me is the thousands, and I, and I mean that literally, the thousands of members here who wanna steward the time and the talent and the treasure that God has given them. They do not want to waste their life. This church does not get to be the church that it is today with just good senior leadership and we have great senior leadership and they would be the first to tell you it's not just about senior leadership. The only way this church has been able to be as impactful as it has been able to be in this city is because there's been thousands of people saying we don't wanna go to church, we wanna be the church. We've been given gifts and we wanna give them to other people and it's just been amazing to watch over the last 17 years. It's been so encouraging to me to see how many people are stewarding their lives well. If you're sitting in here this morning and you're just going, I don't know if that's me. I don't know if I'm stewarding my life like that. I just want to tell you, you, you are missing out. You are missing out on one of the most joyful, fulfilling aspects of life to be used by God to steward what he has given you. And what that means is that if you're not stewarding what God has given you, you're, you're taking these gifts and you're just collecting them. You're just collecting them. And what Peter is saying and what Jesus was saying in the parable of the talents in Luke 19 and Matthew 25 is that these gifts are not for you. And so if we could just go with the metaphor of our life is like a house, what Peter is reminding us of here and what Jesus was teaching in those parables is that our house, the life of our, of our or the house of our life should look similar to this picture. It should just, should just look like this. And not the, the minimalist design or anything like that, but there's just, there's just enough there's just enough there. He's given you some gifts, and yes, you can use those gifts to meet some of your needs. You have a place to sit, a place to put your coffee, a television to watch when you bring friends over to watch the game. But there's not too much in there. There's, there's a lot that has been given away. And so if you're not 
giving of your time, your talent, your treasures. And that means the, the house of your life looks more like this. It's just cluttered. It's just filled. It's hoarding. And so Peter is telling us, do not waste your life by hoarding. Hoarding serves no one. If you want to make sure that you're not wasting your life, now is the time to be self-controlled. Now is the time to be selfless, to focus on others, and now is the time to be a steward. Now is the time to be a steward. So as I think about what Peter is saying in here and this theme of don't waste your life, I can't help but think about the guy that we mentioned in the very beginning of this message, John Piper. John Piper, some of you guys know him. He wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life that came out years ago. And the idea for that book came from a message that he preached back in May of 2000 called Boasting Only in the Cross. In May of 2000, he was at this event run by Louis Giglio and the Passion Conference Movement. They did this event called One Day 2000 at a farm just outside of Memphis, Tennessee. 40,000 young adults and college students gathered for one day of worshiping God through music and through the teaching of God's word. And John Piper, 54-year-old John Piper, got up in front of this 40,000 young adults and college students. This was the end of Generation X and the beginning of the millennial generation was what made up this 40,000 people that were at this event. And 54-year-old John Piper gets up there and he is full on in his dad clothes. He's got his pleated slacks on and his starched shirt that's all tucked in. And he sat there and he pleaded for 40 minutes with those students and with those young adults, do not waste your life. And this message boasts only in the cross. And the end of this message, he shared two stories. And some experts have now, as so much time has passed, looking back on that message, a lot of experts would say this seven minutes is what's been called the seven minutes that moved a generation. That these stories that he shared at the end of that message, that seven minutes did more to spur on others for the spread of the gospel than almost any other message over the last 19 years. So as I thought about a way to close this message here this morning, I thought, let's do something different. Let's close with the way he closed that message 19 years ago. So we're gonna do something different. We're gonna watch the close of this message. You guys seen the movie Inception? A dream within a dream? We're about to have a sermon within a sermon, okay? So this is, I don't know if we've ever done this. It's gonna blow your mind. You're gonna have trouble sleeping tonight, but it's okay, just watch it. This, this video, it looks a little vintage. You're gonna see some people dressed weird. You're gonna see some puka shell necklaces. It looks like a, bat, a blast from the past, but it's, its message is timeless. So let's watch this. You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ and you don't have to have a high EQ. 
You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them, which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference because it isn't you. It's what you're gripped with. But one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell. And that's all you want. You don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. And that's a tragedy in the making. That is a tragedy in the making. About three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and then in retirement, partnering up with Ruby, also pushing 80, and going from village to village in Cameroon. And the brakes give way, over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost, a, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified, among the poor and the sick, in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked. 
It is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement. Collecting shells. As the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. God, look at my boat, God. Well, not for Ruby and not for Laura. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. So good. Now, one thing, be gripped by it. Yeah, it's worth clapping. Now, one thing, be gripped by it and be willing to lay down your life for it. And that one thing is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when our lives are gripped by the love that has been shown to us through Jesus, and we understand that we've been forgiven and we're now restored and reconciled to God, when our lives are gripped by that, and we can do what what Peter says to be sober-minded and start to pray, and we start to understand where life is truly found, God, by his spirit, enables us to be self-controlled. God, by his spirit, enables us to be selfless. God, by his spirit, enables us to be a steward. We're not gonna waste our life. We won't get to the end of our life and look with regret. I don't know what the end is gonna look like, how all the details are gonna shake out. I don't know what your kids are gonna turn out like, how your career's gonna end up. I don't know what neighborhood you're gonna end up living in. I don't know how your health is going to be, but I do know that if we can follow after Jesus and do that, we will not waste our life. So when that message was being preached in May of 2000, this church, Watermark, had been around for about five months. 
There was a group of people that didn't want to waste their life and said, we want to be God's people here. We don't want to go to church. We want to be the church here. We want to be self-controlled. We want to be selfless and focused on others, and we want to steward the gifts that God has given us. And there was a song that early on we used to sing all the time. It's the closest thing we've got to a hymn here at Watermark or closest thing we've got to a doxology. It's called One Pure and Holy Passion, and it really is a prayer asking God by his grace and mercy for us to not waste our life and that we can make following him our passion. And I thought it'd be a great way for us to close here this morning. So let's stand and let's sing this.